Welcome to The Term, a podcast by Law360 to keep you up to speed about the Supreme Court and the justices that preside there. I'm Jimmy Hoover. I cover the court for Law360 here in Washington. My co-host, Natalie Rodriguez, is unfortunately out today, so I'll be handling the show myself. Uh, for our final episode of 2019, I'm going to be speaking with Erwin Chemerinsky about what we can expect from the Supreme Court's new conservative majority in the years to come. Uh, in addition to being the dean of UC Berkeley School of Law, Erwin is a frequent Supreme Court advocate and legal scholar, so I'm looking forward to our discussion. Uh, but before jumping on the line with him, I wanted to quickly update you about some news from the court since our last episode. So on Friday, the justices agreed to take up a, a pair of cases that we've talked about quite a bit on this show um, involving President Donald Trump's uh, personal financial records. So a House committee and the Manhattan District Attorney's Office are subpoenaing those financial records from uh, President Trump's longtime accounting firm, Mazars. So the court's going to hear the legality of those subpoenas in March, um, agreeing to take up uh, the president's appeals. And on Wednesday, the court took up a pair of cases with some pretty big implications for employees of religious organizations. The question in the case is whether the First Amendment bars workers from bringing discrimination lawsuits against uh, religious employers when those workers have to perform you know, religious activities um, for their job. So there's something called the ministerial exception, and that is that labor law doesn't really apply to certain ministerial workers of, of religious groups when they perform religious duties. So the question in this case is, you know, to what extent do those workers have to be engaging in those religious activities to fall under this ministerial exception. So it'll be probably a pretty big deal for, you know, teachers who work in Catholic schools like the ones at issue in this case or other uh, religious organizations like that. But now that we're all caught up, uh, I want to turn now to our special guest. So joining me now from the West Coast is Dean Erwin Chemerinsky of UC Berkeley School of Law. He is a frequent Supreme Court advocate and legal scholar. Welcome to the show, Erwin. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure to talk with you. Absolutely. So today we're going to be discussing um, basically the future of the Supreme Court um, under this new conservative majority. A lot of shows do, you know, year-end shows that look backwards, but we're going to be looking forward. So I just wanted to kind of tee things off talking about, uh, you know, what's different about this new conservative majority. Obviously, uh, Republican appointees have enjoyed a majority on the Supreme Court for years now, as you've pointed out in our previous conversations, but something's different about this new one. So can you kind of give us a little historical perspective there? Since 1969, there have always been at least five, and sometimes many, eight of the justices at a time appointed by Republican presidents. But there's always been a swing justice on the court, a Lewis Powell, a Sandra O'Connor, an Anthony Kennedy, who would join with the liberal justices, especially in some of those high-profile areas like abortion rights, affirmative action, gay and lesbian rights. But no longer is there such a swing justice on the court. There are five conservatives, all appointed by Republican presidents. There are four liberals, all appointed by Democratic presidents. And that's something we've never seen before. Right. And what does the absence of that swing justice do to the conservative majority? I mean, people call it a working majority. What does that actually mean in practice? What it means is, in the vast majority of instances, with an ideological disposition of the case, it's going to have five conservatives on one side and four liberals on the other. It's going to be much more predictably split in those cases where ideology is going to make a difference. Right. And so in the absence of a swing justice, you know, obviously that fifth vote, people have started calling Chief Justice John Roberts the new swing vote justice. Would you kind of coin that term for him? Would you use that label or something else? In one sense, I think he is the swing justice. 
He is ideologically the median justice, the middle justice on the court. He's, I think, not as conservative as Thomas Alito, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh, though nowhere as liberal as Ginsburg, Breyerson, and Kagan. And in the vast majority of instances where the court is split five to four ideologically, he's going to be with the conservatives. That said, if there's going to be a justice who's going to join with the liberals in a high-profile ideologically split case, it's going to be John Roberts. We saw that in the Affordable Care Act case. We saw it just last term in the census case. But it's important to remember there are some areas where it's very unlikely that John Roberts is going to be the swing justice. Abortion, affirmative action, gay and lesbian rights are areas where Anthony Kennedy was the swing justice, and before him, Sandra O'Connor, and before her, Lewis Powell. But John Roberts isn't going to be. John Roberts has never voted to strike down any restriction on abortion since coming on the court in 2005. John Roberts adamant that all forms of affirmative action are unconstitutional. And John Roberts dissented in the marriage equality cases, United States versus Windsor and Oberfell versus Hodges. In fact, in Oberfell, John Roberts wrote a vitriolic dissent, the only dissent John Roberts has ever read from the bench. And I want to talk about um, Chief Justice, the gap in kind of the public's understanding of Chief Justice Roberts's role. Obviously, he's had, you know, that record since 2005 when he's, you know, it's been deemed the Roberts court. And yet there still seems to be something kind of unpredictable about him. You know, one minute he's, you know, striking down campaign finance regulations and the next he's upholding Affordable Care Act. Some commentators I've seen refer to this as kind of his institutionalist streak. What do people mean by that? What should people understand about um, John Roberts's view of what his role should be on the court as the chief justice? As the chief justice, John Roberts is the first among equals. He presides over the conferences. When he's in the majority, he assigns who writes the majority opinion. He, of course, heads the Judicial Conference of the United States. It's also widely said that John Roberts cares a great deal about the image of the Supreme Court and his legacy as Chief Justice. And so many believe that influences how he comes out. I'm more skeptical of that. So in the Affordable Care Act case, I don't think that John Roberts voted as he did to bolster the court's institutional legitimacy. The reality is if the court struck down the Affordable Care Act, that would please about 50% of the country. And by upholding the Affordable Care Act, that pleased about 50% of the country. I think John Roberts came to the conclusion that he believed was constitutionally right, that the Affordable Care Act was a lawful exercise of Congress's power. So yes, undoubtedly John Roberts cares about the image of the court, but I don't think that really determines how he votes in particular cases. Yeah, last term was interesting in that, uh, you know, some people accuse the court of actually shirking some of the bigger cases in the wake of, you know, the bruising confirmation fight involving um, Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Uh, You know, there was a lot of cases, and, you know, I'm thinking of the Title VII um, of the Civil Rights Act cases involving protections for LGBTQ workers um, that the, the, the court just did not take any action on. And yet it seems like the Supreme Court has kind of found its, you know, its, its stomach for these things. And this term is shaping up to be such a historic term with all of these issues, including DACA, you know, abortion and more. So do you think that those concerns are just, you know, I mean, you, 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 you said that, you know, there was obviously his view of the merits that influenced some of his past votes. But do you think that uh, Chief Justice Roberts, those institutional concerns maybe are falling in the, in the background now that as we approach this you know, very heavy-hitting term? I think last term, 
Chief Justice Roberts and the justice decided, whenever possible, to have the court take a lower profile. I think that was the result of the Kavanaugh confirmation fight. So on Friday, January 11, 2019, the justices met in their private conference to take the remaining cases to be heard during October term 2018. They had eight slots open on their April oral argument calendar. They had an amazing array of cases to choose among. You mentioned the DACA case was on the docket then, whether or not discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity violates Title VII was on the docket then. The Second Amendment case, turning to the New York City Ordinance, limiting guns outside the home was on the docket then. And I can go on with a long list of other things that were on the docket on, Jan- on the court's conference list on January 11th. The court took none of those cases to hear during October term 2018. However, they've now taken those cases for October term 2019, along with other blockbuster cases in areas like abortion, presidential immunity from subpoenas, separation of powers. So the courts are not going to succeed for very long in keeping a lower profile. Indeed, I think the unintended consequence of not taking the cases for last term is that these are decisions now that are going to come down in June 2020 in the midst of a presidential election campaign. Right. And it seems like some of those cases, I mean, I'm thinking of the Title VII case, right, where you have this massive circuit split. Uh, the lower courts are confused over which you know, view of um, the, the statute reigns. You know, should um, LGBTQ uh, workers be protected under that um, title or not? Th- those things seem kind of like inevitable questions that the court would have to take up. But I'm, my next question is you know, about when the court has its own prerogative. So this new working majority that people refer to, what are its you know, priorities going to be you know, in the short term over the next you know, f- few years? I don't know that priorities is the right word. Because I don't know that they set out with an agenda and say, let's accomplish this agenda. On the other hand, the justices have an ideology, and I think the ideology is going to influence the cases they take and how they decide them. So let me give you an example. I think that the conservatives on the current court want to do much more to protect gun rights under the Second Amendment. And I think we're going to see, whatever the court does in this term's gun case, a number of cases in the years ahead where the conservative majority expand gun rights under the Second Amendment. I think the conservative majority on the current court wants to provide much more protection for free exercise of religion, and I think it may even include the ability to discriminate against others. And so I think that the issue that wasn't resolved in Masterpiece Cake Shop two years ago is going to be back before the Supreme Court. I think the conservatives on the court, led by the two newest justices, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, really want to rein in the administrative state. I think we're going to see a revival of the so-called non-delegation doctrine, that Congress can't delegate its legislative power to executive agencies. And I think that's going to put dozens, maybe hundreds of federal laws in jeopardy. So I think these are the kinds of areas where the conservative justices that are now the majority are going to take the law in a very different direction. And it sounds like Chief Justice Roberts is going to be the one to decide how slowly or quickly the court moves in a lot of those cases, right? I think that's right. I think Chief Justice Roberts' inclination is to move more incrementally. And so I think he's a justice who would like to see Roe versus Wade overruled, but I think he's likely to push the court towards chipping away at Roe, killing it by a thousand cuts before getting to the point of explicitly overruling it. I think you're going to see the same thing in other areas where Chief Justice Roberts isn't going to want to go 
as fast or as far right, say Justice Thomas, Justice Alito, Justice Gorsuch. But I think his instincts are with them. I think he's just more wanting to go step by step. And now I'm going to ask you, Erwin, to just kind of take out your crystal ball for me, because the Supreme Court, you know, it's it's in the headlines all the time. It's been called, there's people deem it a legitimacy crisis. You have a lot of Democratic presidential candidates who are calling for major sweeping reforms like we haven't seen since, you know, the FDR days. Um, how long do you expect this, you know, new conservative majority to hold? Are we looking at, you know, another, I guess you said 40 years in the beginning of our conversation of, you know, a Republican appointee dominance on the court. Do you envision it changing anytime soon? Samuel Lito, I'm sorry, Clarence Thomas is 71 years old. Samuel Lito is 69 John Roberts is 64, Brett Kavanaugh is 54, Neil Gorsuch is 52. It's easy to imagine those five justices remaining on the court another decade or two. Obviously, one can't predict health and unforeseen circumstances, and some have speculated that Clarence Thomas might want to resign to allow Donald Trump to pick his successor. But I think we're looking at a solid conservative majority on the court for many years to come. All right. Well, there you have it. Thank you so much, Erwin, for uh, joining us. Uh, it was really a pleasure talking to you about the, you know, the future direction of the Supreme Court. My great pleasure. Thank you for having me on. All right. That's going to do it for this week, and I guess for 2019, because uh, we're going to be taking two weeks off during the holidays. But Natalie and I will be back uh, the second week of January on the 9th to record our next episode. Uh, we'd like to thank our producers and editors, Stephen Trader and Danielle Smith, our executive producer, Amber McKinney, and our contributing reporters this week, Dylan Morosis and Braden Campbell. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. For more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. Find us wherever you get your podcast. Just search Law 360 in the term. Thanks for listening. See you next year.